Well, good morning to you and Happy New Year. Um, it's good to see everybody on this first Sunday of January 2020. Can you believe it? It's here. It's an appropriate text and theme for our service today. We don't plan this stuff ahead of time like this intentionally, but the, the theme of today's service and even the sermon text this morning is very fitting for the new year. And so I'm grateful for it. Our God reigns and rules. He governs everything as we've talked about already by his providence. Nothing happens outside of God's ultimate good and perfect will, and he accomplishes all of his purposes. And that is a great comfort to God's people. It always has been, and it still is, even in the 21st century, a comfort to God's people. So if you will, let's go to God in prayer one more time. Let's ask him for his help. And just like Daniel said so beautifully, we don't come to God in prayer on the basis of our own righteousness or the basis of our merit. It's all because God is merciful. And he's gracious and he hears the prayers of his people. So let's ask him for his help as we look to his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do come to you acknowledging our weakness and our need. We are desperate for you to do anything good for us. We are desperate for you to come and do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so we pray that you would come and move by your spirit as we look to your word. You are faithful to do that. You have promised to bless the preaching of your word when your church gathers, and we're thankful. Our confidence and our hope is in you, in your power, and in your faithfulness, not in our own. And so we do pray that you would show us yourself mightily from your word. We pray that we would see your son clearly, and that in beholding Christ, we would trust in him, that we would hope in him, that we would find peace in him, and we pray that you would bring all of these things about for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. Amen. So the way that we typically handle preaching here at CBC, for those who are newer with us even this morning, the majority of Sundays in the year, we are making our way through a book of Scripture. So I do some topical messages from time to time. We just did a topical series last December on weariness, but typically... 90% of the Sundays or more, we're preaching from a section of Scripture as we make our way sequentially through books of the Bible. And one of the beauties of that kind of approach to preaching is that preachers like me don't get to just pick and choose passages. You don't get to pick your favorite texts or your favorite topics and just talk about those all the time. You preach what's in the Word. And we allow God's Word in that sense to set the agenda for our church. And that's a much like more trustworthy setter of the agenda than me or Ron or any man, right? And so our passage today, just straight up real talk, is not a text that you would ever pick to do a one-off sermon. It is not a text that you would ever pick. If I were going to preach at some church somewhere, I am not thinking I'm going to go and preach Mark 13 or Matthew's equivalent or Luke's equivalent. They all write a very similar passage known as the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus talks very graphically and metaphorically about the destruction of Jerusalem and judgment that is to come. So as we approach this text today, it's important that we would keep a few things in our minds. First thing, this passage, this text was not written so that 20th or 21st century theologians could get PhDs and come up with the most like extravagant interpretations of what this might mean. It was not written for the purposes of those kinds of academic 
and sometimes absurd debates that take place over passages like this. It was written so that people might trust Christ. It was written so that the saints might be built up, might be edified, might be equipped, so that we might see, as we look at a passage like we're going to look at today, how God rules and reigns over history, how Jesus and his earthly ministry is talking about the future, about what will happen. And then as we look at that, and we see, oh my gosh, like everything he talked about happened. It strengthens and confirms our faith and it stirs us in our gratitude and our praise and our affection toward God. And it gives us confidence that we can in fact trust the Lord. So have those things in your mind, kind of come to the text and look at it through those lenses as we look today at Mark chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and open them up or turn them on to Mark 13. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, don't worry about it. We will get the verses, the words to Mark 13 up here on the screen, and you'll be able to follow along just fine. So before we go any further, I'm going to read Mark 13 in its entirety, excuse me, all 37 verses, and then we'll consider it together. This is the word of God. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, nor take anything out, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant or for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, 
and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. I want to preach this sermon in two parts. The first part, with no apologies, is going to be very heavy in explanation. Very heavy in explanation. I want us to try to understand together what does this mean? What is this talking about? And so once we've done that, hopefully sufficiently, not that I'm going to be able to say everything that could be said about this passage in one sermon, but hopefully we can understand it adequately well together. In the second portion of the sermon, I want to give us three big reflections, meditations, implications of the truth of this text. And I think they're applicable for the new year. So that's my hope for our time together today. So part one. Let's try to understand Mark 13 together. Remember the context. This is always a great way to start. Remember the main thrust of last week's message as we were in Mark chapter 12, the last half of it or so. Jesus was pointing out the fact that the religious system of his day was upside down, right? That the whole thing was mixed up. The whole thing was upside down. It was built on false pretenses. It was built on even obedience to codes. It was built on external appearance. It was not legitimate and authentic religion. So in light of that reality, the fact that this religious system is so upside down and corrupted, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And Jesus in verses one and two of Mark chapter 13, if you put your eyes there, makes that quite clear. They come out of the temple complex, this beautiful, glorious building, And even Jesus' disciples, the the small group of even the 12, they're looking at all of this and they're like, look at these buildings, Jesus. How magnificent is this? And he says, you you see all these buildings? You see all these great buildings? Verse two, he's like, they're all coming down. The whole thing is coming down. These buildings and what it represents in terms of the religious system of his day is coming down. Now let me lay my cards out on the table in terms of how I understand Mark 13. And I'm going to lay out my exposition and understanding for you today. And you have your Bibles in front of you and you can judge for yourself my understanding and my exposition. So all the way through verse 30 of Mark 13, all the way through verse 30, Jesus is describing things that will be immediately fulfilled in the year 70 A.D. All the way through verse 30, Jesus is talking about things 
that will find their immediate and primary fulfillment in that sense in the year 70 AD. And in all of this, this is how the Bible works in terms of its prophecy. All of those things that happen that Jesus is describing that will happen in and around 70 AD, many of them will continue to happen from 70 AD on, and they all point to the sort of consummative return of Christ at the end of history. Right? So it's, it's both and. There's immediate and long-term fulfillment. There's immediate and ultimate fulfillment of prophecy in Scripture. It's how it very often works. So a few things for us just to have in our backpack if we're going to understand this text well. First of all, in verse 30, you can keep your eyes there if you're already looking at it. You can see the words very plainly stated by Christ. Truly I say to you, this generation, and that means these people that are standing there with Christ, will not pass away. They won't die. This generation will not be gone before all of these things that I've been talking about happen. So I understand him to be meaning that in a, in a real literal way. It's my argument this morning. If you put your eyes on verse 7 of Mark 13, you'll, hear, you'll look at Jesus' language here. He'll say, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed when all that happens. This stuff is going to take place, but the end is not yet, right? So there's going to be stuff that begins to happen. You can even look at verse 8 where he'll call it the beginning of the birth pains, right? There's stuff that begins to happen. The judgment of God comes in measure on his people in the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And we realize that this is yet just the beginning of the end in that regard. The end, as Jesus talks, would point to the end of history. So the end is not yet. In Luke's gospel and his account and this same discourse, he uses the language of the end will not be at once. It will happen over the course of time. So we can see these events, even in 70 AD, in that regard to be the beginning of the end. Truly, we are living in the last days. This is right to say. If you think about the writer to the Hebrews in the beginning of that letter, he talks about how God has revealed himself in a number of ways through history. But in these last days, he has revealed himself through his son. The era of Messiah, once Jesus has come, biblically speaking, are the last days. I realize that for many in the room that maybe grew up in the church and grew up with kind of the Left Behind series and all that, this is a little bit of a mind blow. But just track with me and read your Bible and Talk to me at the door after the service. This is good for us to look at and wrestle with together. Look at verse 10 with me for just a moment. Jesus says, and the gospel, he's talking about all these things that are going to happen. And in the middle of it, he inserts this. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Well, what's that about? Again, in Matthew's wording, in the parallel account there, Jesus says this, this way. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. But again, we're looking at the beginning of the end. The gospel will go to the ends of the earth, and then the ultimate end will come. So before the end of all things, the gospel will go out. You can even look with me briefly at verse 27. It will go out from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And God will gather his people. He will gather his elect from the entire world. Now, let's look more section by section. I'm just trying to give you some headings and some handles and some things to think through with me 
and to kind of put in your backpack as we try to understand this together. Let's look at verses 3 through 13 together for a moment. We've thought about verses 1 and 2 where Jesus tells them this whole thing is coming down. Now more specifically, in verses 3 through 13, Jesus talks about a number of things. He talks about false Christs and false messiahs. He talks about military conflict, earthquakes, famine, his followers being delivered over to rulers to bear witness and the like. Well, let's just wrestle with some of that and think about how this came to be in time and space. False Christs, Jesus points to in these verses 3 through 13, false messiahs. Well, there's a, there's a Jewish historian who's very helpful to us. His name is Josephus, and he wrote in the first century, and we have a number of his writings preserved. There's also a Greek historian named Eusebius who also wrote in the same time, and they write about the prevalence of false messiahs during the 40s, 50s, and 60s AD. So this is historically verifiable. As an example, even in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, Luke, the writer of that book, mentions two men by name who had claimed to be the Christ, who had gained a following. So this was happening in the decades after Jesus died and rose from the dead. So Christ's prediction of false Christs, it comes to be. On military conflicts, how he talks about wars and rumors of wars and the like, a Roman historian named Tacitus, along with Josephus, the Jewish historian that I already mentioned, writes of a number of military disturbances, again, in these same decades, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, 60s, 70s AD. With respect to earthquakes, there are many documented. There's a Roman philosopher that some may know named Seneca. He's relatively famous. He wrote quite poignantly about the earthquakes that happened in the Mediterranean, in the Middle East, and West Asia during the middle part of the first century. With respect to famine that Christ predicts as well, Acts chapter 11 describes a famine that will come. Historians believe that in 44 AD, that famine happened. It's documented, it's written about. And there was also, according to Roman historians, a very large famine in 51 AD. So again, there are famines happening in this era of history between the ascension of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. I want to be very clear about AD 70 in that regard. It's been hinted at. I should be more clear. In the year 70 AD, many in the room may realize this, but if you don't, no shame in that at all. In the year 70 AD, the Romans sieged Jerusalem and basically leveled the city, the temple complex included. And we're going to think more specifically about some of that in just a moment, but have that in your mind as well. As far as Jesus' followers being delivered over to councils and beaten in synagogues and standing before governors and kings, we see some of this described very well and vividly for us in the book of Acts as well. Chapters 4 and 5 of Acts describe the disciples being beaten and put in prison and being called before leaders of the Jewish people to give account. We read in Acts 6 and 7 about Stephen, the first martyr, as he is often called, where he is killed for what he says about Christ and about God's plan through Jesus. We even think about Paul before rulers named Felix and Festus and Agrippa in Acts chapters 23 through 26. I mean, we have record of these very things happening in the decades following Jesus's life. Let's move together through to verses 14 through 23 of Mark 13 and just look at a few of the big things here. In these verses, Jesus is going to describe this thing called the abomination of desolation. That's quite a, quite a phrase. We're going to think about that together for a moment. He talks about fleeing the city. He tells his people, when you see this happening, you need to leave Jerusalem. You need to get out because it's not going to go well. He also talks about great suffering, 
like the world has never seen nor will see again in those verses. So let's consider those things together. The abomination of desolation, first of all. Luke writes in his account of Jesus' same discourse, he writes about the, there will be armies that surround Jerusalem. So in thinking about this abomination of desolation, there would be armies that would surround Jerusalem. That would have been the Roman armies. There's siege warfare going on for several years leading into 70 AD. And in the year 70, the Romans invade the city. In particular, under an, a, a general named Titus, they entered the temple complex. The general named Titus had the temple complex leveled. They took the lampstand and a number of the temple artifacts out and desecrated the temple in that regard. These were Gentile men, right, pagan men, standing in the Holy of Holies as it was known to the Jews in that time and seeing the temple complex desecrated in that way. It is my opinion, I'm not unique in this, that we should understand the abomination of desolation being that very event where pagan military officers enter the temple complex, enter the holy city and have it leveled and have all of the temple artifacts removed. The temple would not be rebuilt in that sense, right? It's destroyed and it's leveled. It seems that what Jesus is warning about happened in the year 70 AD at the hands of the Romans. When Jesus warns in verses 15 and following about when you see this stuff happening, when you see this abomination of desolation, armies circling the city, when you see this happening, you should run. You ought not go back to your house. You ought not to go get anything. And then he even says, it's going to be hard to flee the city. Woe unto pregnant women in those days. It will be hard to keep up as we're trying to flee the city. Woe unto those who are nursing infants in those days because it's hard to keep up as people are fleeing the city. And winter would only make it worse. Pray that it doesn't happen in winter. Right? So often in Scripture, I mean, realize this. The simpler interpretation is better, right? Rather than coming up with extravagant ideas about what this might mean. Now, understand that the scripture does use different genres, no argument. There is metaphor, there is figurative language. We all agree about that. But in some contexts, we introduce tremendous mystery that's not there, where Jesus, in this case, is describing historical realities that have happened, and we can look at it and see that that's the case. The horrible tribulation that Jesus talks about, beginning in verse 19. There will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. If God had not cut short the days, nobody would have survived. Again, we look at history. History is not infallible, but history alongside Scripture is helpful to us in understanding how things have happened. During the time of the Roman siege of Jerusalem, the Jewish historian Josephus, that we've mentioned several times, writes about the horror and the chaos that filled the holy city. And he uses these words. He says, he, he writes, never did any other city suffer such miseries from the beginning of the world, close quote. Jesus talks of more false Christs coming in verses 22 and 23, and we've already considered some of that together. Let's look at verses 24 through 27 for just a few moments. In these verses, Jesus talks of more things happening. He talks about signs in the heavens, right? He talks about things going on with the sun and the moon. He talks about powers in the heavens being shaken. He talks about, you'll see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. 
And then he talks about angels, messengers going out to gather the elect from everywhere in the world. Let's think about those things together. With respect to the sun and the moon and the stars falling and powers and heavens being shaken, it's appropriate for us to understand that the Bible does often use that language to describe upheaval and judgment on earth. The prophets write like this often. To talk about the heavens being shaken is a very poignant image of judgment, upheaval, turnover, tumult on earth. But if we want to even think about history in terms of signs in the heavens in a quite literal way, there were a number of comets that made appearances during the decade of the 60s AD. What we even know of is Halley's Comet appeared in 66 AD. That's kind of cool, right, that this kind of stuff is happening in the heavens. Historians, including Josephus, talk about unusual appearances of stars over the city of Jerusalem over a period of several years leading into the Roman siege of the city. So there were things going on in the heavens, comets and falling stars and the like, along with that kind of symbolic language of upheaval and turnover that the shaking of the heavens would indicate. When Jesus talks about the Son of Man coming in clouds and glory with great power, this is also language often used of the prophets, particularly Isaiah, talk about the Lord coming in the clouds in judgment. Right? So I think Jesus is describing in a very vivid way his powerful, obvious coming in judgment in the year 70 AD, where he often in his earthly ministry set himself over against the religious system of his day, pronounces judgment upon it in the early verses of Mark 13, and then decades later comes in judgment to, in one sense, tear down this false system of religion against which he had set himself during his earthly ministry. These words of Jesus in talking about coming in the clouds with great power will consummatively be fulfilled at the end of history. There's no argument about that. There's no argument about that, that that's the ultimate fulfillment. But God has come in measures of judgment through history. One of those times would have been in the year 70. Let's look at verses 28 through 31 together. Just kind of making our way section by section here. In these verses, quite simply, Jesus is telling his disciples to observe the signs of the times. He's saying, learn the lesson from the fig tree. You look at a tree, when it starts to blossom, it starts to look a certain way, you know what season of the year it is, you know that fruit is going to come soon and, and the like, right? So he says, when you see these things take place, you'll know. You'll know in Mark's account, you'll know that he is near. In Luke's account, you'll know that the kingdom of God is near. You'll know that these things are happening at the hands of the Lord. When these things begin to take place, observe the signs of the times and you'll see it. And then again in verse 30, we see Christ say that all of these things will happen before this generation passes away. Heaven and earth will pass away, right? But my words will not pass away. My words most certainly will come to pass. Right, that's what he's saying. All of this has happened. It's important for us to realize that the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and all of those events of the year 70 will be preceded and accompanied by definite observable signs. So that's important. Everything preceding the year 70, all of these events, they will be accompanied by definite observable signs. However, the second and final coming of Jesus is not like that. The scripture is very clear that, and Jesus is going to go there right now, that nobody knows that day or that hour, right? So there's a distinction between what he's been talking about up to now and the end of history. 
Because he's just been saying, observe the signs of the times and you'll know this is happening. Then pivots immediately, put your eyes on verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, right? No one knows, not even the angels, nor the son, but only the father. It's important that we look at that and understand that specifically. The focus of Jesus changes in verse 32. I'm arguing from the text. He changes the focus in verse 32 to the end of the world, the end of history. Up until then, we've been thinking about 70 AD, primary fulfillment. Now, beginning in verse 32, we're looking at the end of history, Christ's consummative second coming. That day, the language of that day, throughout the Gospels in the language of Christ, points to the end of history. He talks this way a lot in the Gospel of Luke. That day, in Jesus' vernacular, almost always points to the end of history. We've, we've now stepped outside of the scope of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and we're now dealing with the end of the world, the day that will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth, Luke 21, 35. So again, I just want to be very clear that Jesus tells his followers up until verse 32 that you need to observe all the signs and you'll know what's going on. If you observe things astutely, you'll know what's going on. But there's something different about that day. There's something different about that hour that's coming. Nobody knows. Not even the son knows, but the father knows. And that's another conversation for another time. Jesus tells us that in Luke 17, that that day, that hour, will be like the days of Noah, right? The days of the flood where people are eating, people are drinking, people are getting married, people are just living life, and then suddenly it's there. The end is there. So he tells us in verses 32 through 37, after he has said, nobody knows when this is going to happen, what's the takeaway? Be on guard, be vigilant, stay awake. It's a completely different presentation in verses 32 to 37 than it was prior. I was telling you about things that are going to happen Know that all of this is going to happen. When you see these things happening, flee the city. When you see these things happen, don't be alarmed. It's just the beginning of the end, right? But now, concerning that day, nobody knows. Stay awake. So I hope, it's a lot, it's a fire hose. It's a lot to try to take in. But I hope that all of that by way of explanation has been at least somewhat helpful to you. I trust many of you may have questions, and I'm happy to field them after the service at the door back there. Talk with each other. Email me. I'm happy to interact over God's truth anytime. So what I want to do now is turn our focus for the second portion of our sermon, the time that we have left together today. I want to consider three big implications, three big reflections on the text or from the text. Number one, God reigns over history. So you want, what's a takeaway from this text today? God reigns over history. So that includes all of history, but certainly it includes the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and all of the events around 70 AD that we've been talking about today. Even terrible things that have happened in history are not happening outside of God's plan for his world. God works to accomplish redemption, the redemption of his people, and he does that even through suffering and through the evil actions of men. If we want to think about the greatest example of that in the history of the world. It's the murder of the Son of God. The greatest sin in the history of the world is the fact that Jesus, the only man who never deserved anything bad, 
the only perfect sinless human being ever, was murdered and put to death at the hands of lawless men, as Scripture says. The greatest sin in the history of the world. It's also the greatest event, redemptively speaking, in the history of the world, along with the resurrection. Through that, the greatest sin ever committed, God was bringing many sons to glory. This is how the Lord works. He reigns over history. It's important for us to realize that Christianity is a unique religion in the scope of world religions. I say this a lot in that it is the only religion in the world based on news, based on time and space news. Something happened in history that has changed everything. Right? And now there is no longer stuff to just go do in hopes that God might accept you. Islam, Judaism, right? There is now something that has been accomplished that is to be trusted, believed in, rested in, hoped in. The work is done. Christianity is utterly unique. It is grounded in history, in events that have happened in time and space. And the clear thrust of Scripture is not just that God knows the future. It's that God has planned the future. It's a huge distinction. He's not just really smart. He doesn't just anticipate every conceivable world and pick the right one, right? He has planned and ordained the future. God's providence, therefore, brothers and sisters, is a comfort to us. Not because it means that we won't suffer. Not because it means that we won't go through hard things. God's providence, though, is a comfort to us because it means that even in the worst days of our lives, the hardest times in human history, God has not lost control of this thing. And we know that ultimately we are safe. Now, a few words of counsel. This is still all under number one. God reigns over history. Just a few words of counsel regarding God's providence and how you weigh it and assess it. As you look at the world, large scale, as you look at your life, small scale. First word of counsel regarding God's providence, don't try to read between the lines all the time. Don't spend your life reading the tea leaves of God's providence. It won't end anywhere good, I promise you. You'll draw a number of very bad, very wrong conclusions about what's going on. And honestly, if you do that, you'll, you'll miss the point. You will miss the real point of everything, trying to figure out what the point is in terms of what God is up to. Second word of counsel on God's providence. The secret things belong to the Lord. The secret things belong to the Lord. There are many things that are not ours to know. They're above our pay grade. Third thing, regarding God's providence. There will be many times that we will not be able to see at all what God is really doing. There will be many times where we will not be able to see at all what God is really doing. And I mean, essentially, that's true all the time. Like people, people have said this before me, right? Like you might be aware of one or two of the like 10,000 things that God is doing at any given second. We just are so finite in our ability. Our perspective is so limited. So we're not going to be aware. We're not going to know. We're not going to understand. And then fourthly, lastly, just pastoral, just word of counsel to you with respect to God's providence. The Christian life is not about being able to put your finger on what God is doing all the time. 
The Christian life is not about being able to put your finger on what God is doing all the time, though you would not know that listening to most Christians talk. Listening to most Christians talk, particularly about their suffering, you would never know that that's true. Because what do we do? What have we been kind of taught to do? When we encounter hard times, we're like, okay, well, what's God up to? I need to figure out what God's up to so this suffering will end, right? That is just nonsense, biblically speaking. It's not helpful. The Christian life is about trusting Jesus and hoping in Jesus, whether we're sitting on the mountaintop or whether we're trudging through the valley of this life. It's about trusting Christ on our way to the new heavens and the new earth where all suffering will be over one day. That's what it's about. All right, second big reflection takeaway from this passage. If the first is that God reigns over history, the second, very much related, Jesus holds the future. Jesus holds the future. So I don't know about you. I'm, I've been pretty, I think, open over the course of time with a number of you in the church. Anxiety is a real thing for me. That's manifests itself a number of ways. But one of the things that anxiety means is that I am generally very pessimistic about how things will turn out. I worry about stuff. I think I just I assume like I envision bad things happen. In my life, in the corporate life of people I love and know, it's been this way since I was a kid. The future in that sense to me can be a very frightening idea because I don't know what tomorrow brings and that scares me to death. I don't know about you. You might not be that way. But I trust there are many in the room who are that way. It is a tremendous comfort to know that Jesus holds the future, that the future in Christ is secure and that so are we. This is what allows us to not fear, ultimately not fear, even though a lot of scary things happen in a fallen world. A lot of scary things happen. Like, apart from God and Christ, depression and suicide and anxiety are reasonable in this world. Because it's a frightening place sometimes. A lot of good things in the world because God made it good and he's merciful and gracious. And there is a lot of horrible stuff in the world. The truth and the promise that Christ holds the future is why a man like Martin Luther could write words like this that we're going to sing in just a little bit. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, the Lord of hosts is his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Jesus, friends, came to accomplish our redemption. He didn't come to make your redemption possible. He came to save you. He came to do everything that God requires of human beings. He came to fulfill God's holy and perfect law completely so that his record of perfect obedience and righteousness would be counted to sinners by faith. So when you think like I've not obeyed God's law like really ever, 
I'm done. You're right if it weren't for Christ. In Christ Jesus, it is as though you have perfectly kept the law by faith. We also have done a lot of bad stuff and we carry around with us corruption that we inherited from our first parents. Punishment is necessary because God is just and because God is good, he will punish wickedness. And Christ took our sins and our corruption upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took in his own body our sins on the tree and died so that in Christ Jesus, I think I just lost my microphone, I'll project. So that in Christ Jesus, we would be forgiven and absolved of all sin. Every sin that we have committed, are committing, will commit. It's done and paid for and over. So we can say on the basis of this book, not my opinion, that for those who trust Christ, you are forgiven. So on the one hand, like what's a takeaway from today's service? I don't know. Go eat lunch with your friends and enjoy your forgiveness. That's a takeaway from today, right? Because of what Christ has done in atoning for our sin and making us right with God. He also came to deliver us from the final and great enemy called death. You want to talk about something scary? Let's talk about death. And Jesus has conquered that in the place of God's people. And we're told that by our union with him through faith, we most certainly will be resurrected as he was to live forever with God. So Jesus has come and has done all of that. He came to accomplish your redemption and newsflash, he did not fail. He succeeded. He has saved us and he will not lose us. He tells us he will keep all of those whom he has died for. He tells us that he will keep all of those whom the father has given him he will come back to get us and he will raise us up with him on the last day. That's good news. All by faith, not by anything that we do. Now, thirdly, so this is the third big reflection takeaway piece. Jesus says himself in the text that we looked at today, no one knows that day or that hour. No one except the Father. So what do we do? We're to stay awake. And you're like, okay, so what do we do? Right? Seriously, like, what should we be doing? It's a great question. So we're gonna, I'm going to give you not an exhaustive list at all, just a high-level reality. All right, so I think we're, gonna hit the, we're literally going to hit the pause button and let Ron put batteries in my pack here. For those of you new with us today, technology fails us from time to time. You'll realize this is not the first time this has ever happened. Thanks, man. Okay, after that brief intermission. So I'm just going to start over. No one knows that day or that hour, right? So Jesus says, stay awake. And we rightly would say, okay, well, what does that mean? What should we do? How should I think? What should I prioritize as a Christian? So I'm just going to give us some stuff. There's a lot that could be said. First thing I'll say, just by way of a disclaimer, the church in our day makes the Christian life in incredibly complicated and it's not helpful. It is not complicated. It's deep, like unfathomably deep and impossible in your own strength, but it is not complicated. All right, so that's, that is liberating in and of itself. I'm going to say a lot right now, but I, I'm going to try at the end maybe to just even summarize 
all of this in a few words. Now, like, here are the main things, but here we go. First thing, what does it mean to stay awake? What do we need to do? Nobody's going to fall out of their chair. Trust Christ. That's where we start. If we, don't, if we don't start there, what are we doing? Trust Christ. So Jesus, in his words to his disciples, tells his disciples, abide in me. Well, what does that mean? Abide in me, dwell in me, remain in me means believe in me, trust in me, hope in me, rest in me, place your confidence in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Right? This is John 15. So we start here. We have peace with God now and in the future because of Christ. We start there. Because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Nothing, and by nothing, Paul means nothing in Romans 8, will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We trust Christ. There's a song that we sing here sometimes, the last verse of which goes this way. Lo, the incarnate God ascended, right after his death, pleads the merit of his blood at the throne of God. Venture on him. Venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. Trust nothing else but Christ. Second thing, what do we do? Keep showing up here every Sunday. Keep showing up here every Sunday. The gathered church, saints, is critical for our lives. And I know that I sound like I might be saying something self-serving because I'm a preacher. But preachers did not get together and decide to tell people that you need to come listen to us talk. God in his word tells us that the gathered church is a real significant thing in the life of the saints. God has promised to show up when his people gather in a way that he has not promised to show up when we're by ourselves. He has promised to show up and uniquely minister and bless his people through the means and the things he's given us. Well, what are those? The word of God, first of all. So when the word of God is opened in the assembly and read and preached, God always accomplishes his work with it. He has promised us that that's true. And you realize when you read your New Testament that that's a first century context. And so all of those words about the word of God, reading it and meditating and like the preaching and the public reading of scripture, all of that stuff would have been happening in the context of the church assembled because people didn't have Bibles. People didn't have their own Bibles until like 300 years ago, by and large. So it's a corporate reality that the apostles are exhorting us to word ministry in the context of the church gathered. God shows up and uniquely blesses his people through the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those sacraments are about God's faithfulness to us before they're ever about our faithfulness to him. Baptism represents the fact that we have been united to Jesus by faith that we have been united to his death and resurrection, that we have been raised to walk in newness of life, that we've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Remember your baptism and what that represents. The Lord's table is where we come every Sunday after we have received the word of God and we have received Jesus in the word, we come to the table to receive Christ by faith there. We are proclaiming his death until he comes and participating in his body and blood by faith as we come to the table. God uses that week after week after week. When we pray together corporately, I mean, my goodness, Blake, thank you for your prayer today, brother. That's not to just single you out as one guy, but you prayed this morning. Are we not edified as a body when our brothers and sisters pray in our midst? Are we not edified when we sing together, when we sing of God's truth 
right? Next thing. So show up here every Sunday. What else should we do? Prioritize the fellowship of the saints in your life. Prioritize the fellowship of the saints in your life. That means just hang out together as brothers and sisters in the faith. Get to know people. Hang around after service and just talk. That's how things materialize so often. It's like, hey, let's go do this. And then a group of people goes and does something. Oftentimes, the best sort of counsel happens like that organically when you're hanging out with people from church. Yeah, you might schedule a meeting with a pastor or a counselor, and that might be helpful, we hope. But a lot of times, the best counsel happens. You're with a group of friends. Something comes up that's going on in your life. You all talk about it, and you get clarity just through conversation with your brothers and sisters. And God works that way by his spirit through his people. He does it all the time. Lean into the church. Next, what can we do? What should we do? Love one another. Love one another. In the church, encourage each other. Bear with one another. We're all going to sin against each other. We're going to offend one another. It's just a question of how often or, or when will that happen. Not if, it will happen. So bear with one another in love and patience. Show charity and compassion toward one another. Counsel and lovingly correct one another. Seek to restore those who are in sin with a spirit of gentleness, Galatians 6.1. Point one another ultimately to Christ. Just an observation, brothers and sisters, we're nearing the end. It's interesting how in the church, even amongst Christians, when we make New Year's resolutions, we all do, and that's totally good and fine to resolve to do things. It's good. It's just interesting that rarely, if ever, do those resolutions include deeper participation in the corporate life of the church. They almost always are something private. Not that that's bad. It's great to resolve to read the Bible more and pray more, but I think biblically speaking, we should all resolve, I'm going to be more deeply engaged in the corporate life of the church. Like that's a great thing to resolve ourselves to, just a thought. Further, we could go on. Like, brother, give me handles. Help me. You've said some stuff. Keep showing up here. Love each other. Hang out with each other. Great. Get to know God's word. There's the thing. Get to know God's word. You'll get to know it by showing up here and listening to the preaching and hearing it read and hearing God's word explained and all that. But pray that God would give you a desire for his word. Pray that he would help you to make time for it. It doesn't have to be an hour. Start with a few minutes. Like, don't wig out. And yoke yourself to something that's going to crush you in two weeks that you can't maintain. It's just a common sense call, right? Consider practical ways. Just work Bible and good content into your normal rhythms. That's going to be the most helpful way to do it. Next, pray. Pray. What should we do? Stay awake? Pray. Talk to God. The great comfort to me in prayer is that God already knows what I need. He already knows my heart. So we just talk to him. And here, I would say, too, don't burden yourself. God hears brief prayers. Like, you don't necessarily have to set out the first time you're like, hey, I'm going to start praying more. I'm going to pray in the morning. Okay, great. Well, start with 60 seconds, not half an hour, you know, and, and just begin that way where you say, all right, I'm going to begin my day and I'm going to pray to God. Martin Luther said this. I think it's helpful. Prayer should be brief and frequent. Brief and frequent. Like, like frequency matters in our prayer life. We pray about everything. Your prayers might be intense. They might not be. Depends on the moment. That's not the point. Talk to the Lord. Another thing, stay awake. What do we do? Very simple. If God says something is sin, run from it. If God says something is sin, flee from it. Avoid it. Run away. 
Pray that God would give you grace and keep you from sin. That's what Jesus said. Lead us not into temptation, right? Deliver us from evil. Keep my feet from stumbling. Give me grace that I might not sin. If you're married, here we go. These are very simple things. Where you're just kind of like, bro, do we really need to like pay you to say this? Um, if you're married, if you're married, love your spouse. What do we do? If you're married, love your spouse. If you're a parent, love your kids. Love your neighbor. Be kind to others. Be thoughtful and considerate. Be respectful. Be upright in your dealings. Don't use and manipulate other people. Generate relationships with people that you have regular contact with and love them. Just be a normal person. And as opportunities present themselves, and they probably will, give the reason for the hope that you have. It's very simple in that regard. If you're an employee, go to work. Stay awake. What do I do? Go to work if you work outside the home. Show up on time. Put in an honest day's work for an honest wage. Work well with your coworkers. Strive to be good at what you do. All of these things honor God. One time a, a man came to a pretty famous theologian who lived a few hundred years ago, and he was a cobbler. He was a maker of shoes. And he says, um, sir, what do I need to do you know, like to really honor God in my vocation? Probably looking for a very spiritual answer. What do I need to do to honor God in the way that I make shoes? And this man looks at him and he says, well, pretty simply, make good shoes and sell them at a fair price. It honors God, right? We tend to over-spiritualize stuff a lot in a way that doesn't help us. Do what you do well. If you make things, make them well and sell it at a fair price. If you offer a service, be good at it. Do it well. For those whose work is managing the household, do it well. Be resourceful and diligent. Seek to create a loving and healthy environment in your home. Seek to make it a place of peace and order. It's an important job that you do if you are primarily working in the home. So kind of to sum up, right, I've said a lot. All of these things are very ordinary. They are. And this is what we are called to in Christ. These things that seem mundane, they seem ordinary. It's like, well, how is... How is that like mega special? And the answer to that is, well, in and of themselves, none of these things are just jaw-dropping, astonishing. But God uses these ordinary things to accomplish his extraordinary ends in your life and mine and in our lives corporately. It's important that we would realize those realities. So like, what do we do, brother? Give us some marching orders. Trust Christ. Show up to church. Love each other. Love your neighbor. That's a great synopsis of what we do in order to stay awake. For many of us, we need to just frankly calm down and take a breath, right? Realize that we don't hold the future that God does. Realize that we do not save ourselves. Christ has, right? Remember that we are called to trust in Christ and keep the main things of God's word, the main things. We're called to simply be faithful where we stand. Can't do anything else. Can't change anything other than that. Just what does faithfulness look like where I stand right now? It's a liberating thought. It's not complicated. Right? This is why Paul can say in Galatians 2, and I'll leave you with this. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith 
in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Happy New Year to you. May 2020 be a year that things go well, but more than anything, may it be a year that we trust Christ and that we love one another and that we love neighbor. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you. There are things in your word that are above us. We acknowledge that. We pray that you would help us to understand your word rightly. For any of the things that I have said today that are incorrect, I pray they would dissipate and be forgotten for the things that are. We pray that you would drive those truths deep into our hearts, that you would continue to confirm and strengthen our faith in Christ, and that you would continue to transform us and conform us into his image. We pray that you would use these things that we talked about today that are ordinary to do that awesome work. You're faithful to do that, and we trust you to. And we pray for you to continue to watch over us, lead us, and guide us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.